I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. The train is leaving the station, and you best be on it. It's high noon for Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcotour.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 307th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who was overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You formed your political beliefs based on what they would say about you as a person. And now you are running from those political beliefs based on what they say about you as a person. And how did we get here? You see, the thing is, the truth was never that which makes you look good. That was never the answer. But society convinced us it was. All we have to do is do the easy thing, the thing that makes us look good. No action is required. You just accept the slogans as true and repeat them. That's all you have to do. You will be personally rewarded for it and nothing bad will ever happen to you because now you're in the protected class of people who repeat the slogans. And day by day over this time, people have begun to realize that their status in a protected class was always an illusion. And people are realizing the truth, which is they are coming for you sooner or later. Sooner or later, something the people you supported and you have defended even through a stolen election, those people are eventually going to do something that touches your life so profoundly that you can no longer look away. There's a different point for everyone. If you haven't reached that point yet, you might begin to realize that you're one of the most privileged people on the planet. Because for most of the American public and for most of the world, the last 20 months have been nothing but a constant attack on the lives of hardworking American individuals. If you're beginning to feel that and see that, commies, I am begging you to come on back to America. Just migrate back. Get rid of all those stupid and evil communist ideas because no one's going to put up with them out here. But after that, all you need to do is make amends with all of the people you've shamed and bullied and censored and slandered and tried to get fired from their jobs. 
That's it. You have to make amends. Own up to the fact that you were brainwashed and it convinced you to act in a certain way. You lost sight of your morals. You lost your equilibrium and abandoned your principles. People will understand it. It's not like you meant to do that. Society has ways of affecting people. And until you understand that's exactly what it's doing and it's achieving its exact desired outcome in your life and in your being, it's very hard to turn away from it. All of us understand that. And that's why we will accept you with open arms so long as you get rid of the commie ideas and you make amends. We actually want more Americans involved in the projects of human liberty and self-governance. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Tuesday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. Welcome to the show. I don't know how you found it, but it exists for you to understand what all of this is and your role in enabling it so that you can accept responsibility, accept the mistake that was made, and then do your best with the help of all of us to wind that back so that we can restore this country to its proper position in the world. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what we were discussing yesterday regarding the incident in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and then we're going to talk some more about Joe Biden's total and complete illegitimacy. But first, I was thinking last night about the mindset I'm constantly referring to, what I'm trying to get redeemable communists to break out of, and how that relates to what we consider mental illness in this country, okay? I've said before that there were periods during my time in Los Angeles where I experienced bouts of depression, and I've spent a lot of time over the years thinking about the root of that and thinking about what in my life enables me to avoid those experiences again. And I think that nothing makes that difference more than simply accepting reality for what it is and refusing to attempt to convince myself that lies are actually true just because they're more comfortable and more convenient. I think that depression is a, a feeling that emerges when you've tried to convince yourself of so many lies about so many aspects of your life that are actually really important, like moral errors, the way you see the world, your relationships with other people and society in a broader sense. And how that happens is this constant process that, many or even most of us have endured throughout our lives as a result of the manipulation in society. We are constantly told that we must accept one viewpoint, even though it feels completely wrong. We've allowed ourselves to be denatured to the point where we no longer trust our gut. We no longer trust our instincts. And those kind of subconscious ways 
of feeling and knowing cannot be overridden by simply rationalizing that a certain idea is true or finding a bunch of facts that might make that seem true to some people in some instances. There's always that underlying truth that is generating those feelings, and that's what we can't avoid. And so the depression feelings come when you try to depart from reality to to stick to those things because you are incentivized to do so. But that's what society has set us up to do habitually. All we have to do to actually break out of that is to simply stop lying to ourselves and accept the consequences of what the truth is with the faith and the willingness to be able to move forward, knowing that there's a light at the end of that tunnel. There is something better on the other side and there's acceptance on the other side. And what we have in this great awakening whether it's toward accepting the truth about politics or life or the people we have relationships with that we maintain relationships with despite how they may treat us. All of those things that we carry with us, knowing somehow that they are wrong, that's what tears us down and makes us feel small and makes us feel unable to move forward. As soon as you just let things be what they are, that's when the progress begins. And we're seeing that on a society-wide scale as people are starting to accept the truth about what all this is and what our position in the world is and what we must do to change that. What we must do is bravely stare what this is right in the face, accept it, and refuse to comply. We need to break out of the party of false decorum and stop allowing it to run us. And we need to stop agreeing to lie about a certain set of subjects because we are scared of what telling the truth is going to do to our social standing. And so with that in mind, I want to paint a slightly different picture than what is being painted about the Waukesha incident over the weekend. Okay. Imagine for a moment that what happened over the weekend was not an attack on a Christmas parade, but an attack on a celebration of people in the Jewish faith or in the religion of Islam. If this happened in another country, if a career criminal who was let out of prison went out and ran a car through a crowd of Jews gathered for a religious celebration or Muslims gathered for a religious celebration, we would look at that immediately and say, that is terrorism. That can only be terrorism. But instead, the same media that would have no problem saying that in that circumstance, they're now trying to run cover in whatever way they possibly can for this incident. And they're making sure to steer everyone away from calling this what it actually is. Now, America has become a secularized society to a large extent. But 
despite that, there's still an acceptance that Christianity, in whatever seriousness people take it within their own lives, is still the dominant religion here. And with the cultural milieu that we all participate in, we've allowed ourselves to stop thinking of Christianity as a protected religion. We believe that any dominant group or dominant affiliation means that that group can be attacked all the time based on their identity and their deeply held beliefs just because they have a position of dominance. It's the assumption that we can choose certain groups and claim that their dominance somehow suggests an unfairness or an injustice that led to that dominance. The Marxist narrative then says this group's dominance is unfair and it is a result of oppression. Therefore, attacks against that dominant group, no matter how they're defined, are always and everywhere justified. What Sunday actually was, though, was a celebration of religious adherence, celebrating the lead up to the high holiday in Christianity. And we don't need to have theological arguments about any of that to accept that it is obviously true. It's a Christmas parade. In the times we find ourselves in now, that Christmas parade, you know, when you take it in the context of all the COVID lockdowns and the fact that they closed the churches and the constant societal pressure to steer people away from the religious meanings of the Christmas holiday, that Christmas parade is essentially a peaceful protest. That's people gathering and making use of their First Amendment right to assemble and freely practice their religion. So while it's accurate to casually call the gathering a Christmas parade, it is also accurate and perhaps more accurate to call it a truly peaceful protest celebrating a religion's high holiday. Now, the man that we are told was the driver in this SUV was let out of jail on a $1,000 bond that has already been called inappropriately low by the DA's office. There are plenty of aspects of this entire scenario that are highly questionable. Why was his ID just sitting out in the car? Why was the car backed into a driveway so that the messed up front bumper and hood and fender could all be seen from the road? Those are pretty strange things to do for a career criminal who's trying not to get caught. It's hard to imagine a scenario where someone just takes their driver's license out and leaves it in the car. That's not something normal people do. But let's assume the main part of the story is true and that Daryl Brooks Jr. is indeed the man who plowed through the crowd, killing five and injuring more than 40 people. And we can go from there. 
So the man was let out on an inappropriately low bail. The crime that he had recently been arrested for was chasing down the mother of his own child and attempting to hit her with his car like three weeks ago. So this man has tried to murder or maim the mother of his child in response to a domestic dispute. And he was let out with a slap on the wrist by people who all ostensibly support hashtag me too, too. How does that happen? Well, here's how it happens. You simply put a communist in the DA's office. This is from today in the Daily Mail. You bet my bail reforms will kill people. Shocking 2007 admission of woke Milwaukee DA John Chisholm, who guaranteed innocent people would be murdered by the killers he set free. Now that's quite a headline. The Waukesha District Attorney, whose office let out parade killer Daryl Brooks on a $1,000 bond three weeks ago, previously admitted he knew his laxed bail reform would lead to killers being set free and murdering others, saying flippantly in a 2007 interview, you bet it's guaranteed to happen. John Chisholm was elected as Milwaukee County District Attorney in 2007, and he immediately started advocating for lower cash bonds for criminals like Brooks a felon with a history of domestic violence charges who was most recently locked up for running over the mother of his children. In 2007, Chisholm told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, is there going to be an individual I divert or put into a treatment program who's going to go out and kill somebody? You bet. Guaranteed. It's guaranteed to happen. It does not invalidate the overall approach. That's a quote. His shamefaced office, which yesterday admitted they'd set an inappropriately low bond amount for Brooks, has not commented on the resurfaced interview in light of Sunday's atrocity. Chisholm's premonition came true in 2013 when convicted drug dealer Jeremiah Schroeder, 35, was let out on a deferred prosecution and injected a fatal dose of heroin into Cassandra Lutz, a 26-year-old woman. Schroeder was caught trying to move her dead body afterwards and was put back in prison. The victim's family said afterwards that they were pissed that he'd been let out. And even the judge in the case said he regretted it. After being elected in 2007, Chisholm made clear that he sought to send fewer Wisconsin residents to prison while maintaining public safety amid an unprecedented influx of crime in Milwaukee County. To combat the crime wave, Chisholm enlisted the help of the Vera Institute of Justice, a New York-based nonprofit group that works with leaders in government and civil settings to improve the services people rely on for safety and justice, according to the organization's website. Its website explicitly says that Vera opposes cash bail. Advocates say the measure unfairly penalizes the poorest and results in disproportionate numbers of ethnic minority suspects in jails awaiting trial. But opponents say the measure often results in career criminals being immediately released back onto the streets to commit more offenses, with the measure partially blamed for New York City's ongoing crime spike. Chisholm's office agreed to a $1,000 bond for Daryl Brooks on November 11th, despite him being held on charges, including felony bail jumping and domestic violence. 
He was let out, and within a few days, he was behind the wheel of his Ford again. He plowed through crowds at the Christmas parade on Sunday night, killing five adults and injuring 48 people, including two children. Brooks was unrepentant, ditched his car afterwards, and even walked up to a good Samaritan's home, pretending to be homeless and asking for a sandwich. He is now in custody on five murder charges. The families of the victims have not yet indicated whether they plan to file any form of legal action against the city or state of Wisconsin for letting Brooks out on, out of jail on such a low bond. There is, however, growing public outrage over the decision. Many on Tuesday morning laid the blame for the tragedy with Chisholm and the judge who granted the bail, Michelle A. Havas. She has not commented yet. And the article goes on with reactions from Twitter and stuff like that that are not news, even though News outlets always put them in their articles. So what we have is a communist DA who is so committed to a policy that has not proven ever to work anywhere and is only supported by child-brained communists who think that jail is not the appropriate place for criminals. And if they were just allowed to remain in society and we gave them the support they've always wanted, then perhaps they wouldn't be criminals. They're not bad people. They're not predisposed to crime. They don't have any issues about lacking the proper respect for the lives and possessions of other people. They're just products of a bad and unfair system, at least if they're black or brown. If they're white, then they are just acting out their white supremacist entitlement. That's the cause of their criminality. And those people should probably be going to jail. But there's no pragmatic argument for these programs, just as there's no pragmatic argument for defunding the police. This is all part of a broader agenda, and we know what that agenda is. We don't have to pretend that it's something else. So the next move by the communists in this situation is to pretend that there is no pattern among the George Soros funded DAs to do things like you see John Chisholm doing. This piece is from CapitalResearch.org. The writer's name is Shane Devine, and this is dated April 28th, 2021. The headline, America's New Justice System Funded by Soros and Zuckerberg. George Soros funding a new wave of radically lenient district attorneys across America to remake its justice system at the county level sounds like a right wing conspiracy theory, but it's true. He explained why he was going to do it in his recent book, in defense of open society, his commitment to the program was announced by the ACLU in 2015, and the financial record of the endeavor has been tracked by dozens of news outlets over the past several years. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that a conspiracy theory could be so well documented by the people in the conspiracy? Incredible. I wonder if everything is this way. I wonder if everything they call a conspiracy theory actually has really strong support and documentation for its truth. Wouldn't that be shocking? Well, if that was the case, that would basically mean that all of our very brilliant cultural masters and betters would 
simply be denying reality by slandering the people who are reporting on that reality and instead choosing a story that fits their convenient narrative and to enforce the propagation of their falsehood, they use slander and derision and threats to keep the public from knowing the truth. That couldn't be the case, could it? The 90-year-old financier and megadonor laid out his case for nationwide criminal justice reform in the second chapter of In Defense of Open Society, itself an updated version of a 2012 essay. He cited such measures as one of the major objectives in his America-related philanthropy agenda. In November 2014, Soros' Open Society Foundation gave $50 million to the ACLU's campaign to end mass incarceration. The ACLU put out a press release about the donation restating their commitment to cutting U.S. incarceration rates in half by 2020 in what would be, quote, the most ambitious effort to end mass incarceration in American history, end quote. Shortly after making this donation, Soros began steadily contributing large sums to progressive candidates for district attorney positions all over the country. He has spent more than $18 million on left-wing DAs since 2015 with mostly successful results, only seven losses out of 29 races. Meanwhile, dozens of bail funds, groups that pay the bail of suspects accused of crimes, made names for themselves during the Black Lives Matter protests after the killing of George Floyd. Kamala Harris promoted one such group, the Minnesota Freedom Fund, helping its annual revenue go from $100,000 in 2019 to $35 million in 2020. Other big names include the Bail Project, which receives funding from Borealis Philanthropy, and the Fund for Fair and Just Policing, which is a project of Tides Advocacy and was founded with the support of the powerful private foundations, Atlantic Philanthropies, and Soros' Open Society Foundations. Man, oh man, what a conspiracy theory this is. Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan have started giving grants to bail funds and prosecutor reform groups, too. In the 2019-2020 grant period, the Chan-Zuckerberg Initiative gave a million dollars to the Tide Center's Project Fair and Just Prosecution to, quote, promote thought leadership for elected district attorneys, end quote. The group trains future DAs by hosting things like summer clerkship programs in prosecutors' offices for law students. Isn't that amazing? A fast track from law school right into Soros-funded district attorney's offices where all of these district attorneys choose not to prosecute crimes because they believe in the communist agenda and know that the destabilization of cities and communities helps their project. Do you really think that these people care about Daryl Brooks Jr., a career criminal, getting as many opportunities as it takes for him to successfully rejoin society, even though he shows again and again and again and again that he has no care for that whatsoever. He is a menace to society for over 20 years now. The reason he was able to do what he did on Sunday night was because he was allowed to intentionally through a policy that exists to propel the global communist agenda forward, period. 
The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative's recent giving to Tide Center criminal justice reform outfits included $610,000 to Californians for safety and justice, $500,000 to the Justice Collaborative, and $750,000 to the Public Rights Project. In January 2021, CZI boasted it had granted over $164 million to criminal justice reform advocacy groups just before announcing a new and independent organization, the Justice Accelerator Fund, to which it is entrusting $350 million. Ah, corporatism. But wait, what is corporatism really? Ah, it's fascism. That's right. The results. The consequences of all these efforts to re-engineer the U.S. justice system at the local level are as one would expect. As multiple data sets confirm, 2000. 20 was a record year for violent crime. Preliminary FBI data show that murder rates went up everywhere in America in 2020, and not by a little, by 24.7%, if measured nationwide. Criminal justice expert John Roman said 2020 surge is the largest increase in violence we've seen since 1960, when we started collecting formal crime statistics. How did it happen? It's a mystery. In Philadelphia, homicides have gone up 29% since April 2020, making 2020 the city's most violent year in over three decades. Larry Krasner, Philadelphia's district attorney who received almost $1.7 million from Soros in 2017, blames other forces, especially COVID-19 lockdowns closing hosts of programs, including public school itself, that normally keep young men off the streets and out of trouble. I do not believe that people who have had the wisdom to elect progressive prosecutors all over the country and increasingly all of a sudden are going to get the stupids, Krasner said, arguing that the universal rise in murder refutes critics scapegoating of new progressive DAs. So I guess the claim here is that murder is up in so many places. It can't be us. I wonder if he has the wherewithal to understand what caused the COVID-19 lockdowns that he says are the real reason for the murder rates who closed the schools for no reason based on no science and kept them closed for no reason based on no science and against the wishes of parents who funded the school boards and the teachers unions that kept those schools closed based on no science. How did it happen? What a conspiracy theory to think all these things that are provably connected are somehow connected. While Krasner is right that the spike in murder rates happened across the country cities in 2020, not just in cities with progressive DAs, the question remains whether DAs like himself have had a hand in the severity of the uptick. Local Democratic ward leaders who have refused to endorse Krasner for election maintain he is at least partly to blame. Krasner's argument would also hold more weight if 2020 murders were the only factor under consideration. Statistics were indicating rising crime rates in the new progressive attorneys districts before the pandemic. A June 2020 report from the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund found shootings had gone up 18 percent in Krasner's district since he took office. Overall, violent crime rose 5 percent and robberies went up 7 percent. John Cruzo of Dallas County, Texas, whose conviction rates are significantly lower than his predecessors, oversaw a 15% rise in violent crimes, a 27% spike in homicides, and a 13% rise in auto thefts in 2019. That's even before the pandemic. Under Joe Gonzalez, Bexar County, that's San Antonio, Texas, 
saw guilty verdicts for 31% fewer sex assault cases, 21% fewer aggravated assault or attempted murder cases, and 9% fewer robbery cases. Under Kim Fox, state's attorney for Cook County, Chicago, Illinois, 20% fewer robbery cases and 9% fewer rape and sex crime cases resulted in guilty verdicts. Overall, Fox's reign has led to a 27% decrease in guilty verdicts and a 54% increase in dropped or dismissed cases. Cruzo, Gonzalez, and Fox all received funding from Soros's prosecutor, Pax. But there's no evidence. Whether liberal prosecutors are to blame for the surging crime cannot be absolutely proven. Voters in local districts will decide that question for themselves. Or, you know, they probably won't because of election fraud. And that's obvious. What is certain is that artificially lowering prosecution rates without addressing the underlying sociological factors that cause crime is not a real solution. The crime continues to happen, punished or not, while the rest of the population suffers from the crime and from the poverty rates and social decay that produce the crime. A resultant crime wave may cause a reactionary political victory nationwide and a re-legitimization of tough policing in the short term, but the calls for justice against that hard policing will always return. In both instances, the factors underlying crime are unaddressed. We have seen this time and time again. It seems that progressives rarely link incarceration rates to poverty anymore. Judging by much of mainstream rhetoric, contemporary thinking on that matter holds that racism alone causes the phenomenon. It says that high crime rates in urban areas are a racist illusion. Our laws are racist and arrests are made arbitrarily and selectively. Therefore, if we were to fix our racist culture and put an end to our racist justice system, the whole problem would be solved and everything would be fine. This is typical of late progressivism, as it ceaselessly undercuts material reality in favor of narratives about prejudice. Politicians attempted to reduce said poverty through the welfare programs launched during LBJ's war on poverty. But economic inequality in America has increased since then. Instead of focusing on the working class and the political power of labor, these programs focused on combining the rhetoric of identity with the welfare capitalism of post-war Keynesianism, themes we see dominating the political landscape today. This allowed for jobs to be outsourced overseas, unions to be crushed, and monopolies to form all under the watch of a progressive ideological hegemony in the federal government. Rather than empowering the labor classes, progressivism morphed into an ideological justification for placating poor masses, always growing in number, while allowing the oligarchy to pillage the country of every possible means by which the people could free themselves from poverty. Hiring armies of cops to mercilessly oppressed, deindustrialized, impoverished regions of the country is not exactly an intelligent solution either. To lower incarceration rates and put an end to the private prison industry, whose lobbyists influence legislation that ensures their supply of inmates will not run dry, the political situation would need to allow for a reawakening of the American working and poor populations through robust economic security and the ability to lead less stressful, stable lives. And by the way, Donald Trump's economic programs were addressing exactly that problem. This would require unorthodox economic policies across the government to reindustrialize the country, transform the material existence of both the urban and the rural poor, and curb the power of the wealthy who perpetuate this obscene system. 
But as these solutions cut against the ideological line of the rulers and are pettily hoarded by hostile political camps, they are unlikely to emerge under current conditions. Billionaires like Soros and Zuckerberg are merely the latest actors to play the role of facilitating this tired progressive effort, but philanthropic capitalists like them do not have any kind of corrective oversight system that could redress their philanthropic efforts based on their results. So by nature, they cannot solve the problem and will only make life more chaotic for everybody involved. The chapter from Soros's book cited above provides interesting insight into the minds of billionaire philanthropists. In it, he raises the question of why selfish individuals like himself would spend their money on such selfless philanthropic efforts. His answer is that it absolves moral guilt incurred from their egotistical business practices. Nevertheless, he complains that financial repression after 2008 has made it more difficult for international hedge fund managers to make money while the demand for hedge fund managers philanthropy has increased, insisting all the while that it is only through the generosity of plutocrats that society can improve. American progressivism, like all unthinking pragmatisms, tries to find can-do practical solutions to problems engendered by the very system whose constraints it conforms to, like trying to have the devil put out the fires of hell. And that could not be more dead on. Now, I don't think it's necessary for me to play once again the George Soros interview from many years ago on 60 Minutes. You can find it in the info stream on Telegram simply by searching George Soros 60 Minutes, t.me slash I'm your moderator. Watch the video. It's about six minute clip. And in it, George Soros describes how he felt no guilt whatsoever by pretending to be Christian and helping to load Hungarian Jews onto the trains to concentration camps. That's who George Soros is. But George Soros is also a foreigner who helped to create the election fraud apparatus that exists in our country and many other countries across the world, including Myanmar, which is why that is such an interesting parallel to the situation as it develops here. You can also look to Peru, you can look to Belarus, and they are attempting to get the same election fraud apparatus up and running in Brazil before the Brazilian elections next year. And just so we don't have to hear the communists whine about how that was a conservative outlet that published the piece I just read, Politico, August 30th, 2016, by Scott Bland, George Soros's quiet overhaul of the U.S. justice system. Progressives have zeroed in on electing prosecutors as an avenue for criminal justice reform, and the billionaire financier is providing the cash to make it happen. Now, I'm not going to read it out to you, but you're more than welcome to go do so. What George Soros is doing is not a secret in any way. It is simply a matter of accepting the truth as it stands. We have to stop pretending that all of these things exist in a vacuum just because we can find some commie fact checker to debunk them. For every truth in the world that works against the global communist narrative, you will find a fact check that gives a convoluted and complicated explanation to divert from that truth while not doing anything to disprove it because they can't. 
So let's rehash for a moment. The man who committed the heinous act running his car through the celebration in the lead up to a high holy holiday for a major religion was recently let out on bail at an inappropriately low amount by a George Soros funded prosecutor after that person had committed virtually the same crime against the mother of his own child a few weeks ago. George Soros funds these DAs all around the country to destabilize cities. He also funds Black Lives Matter Antifa that does the same thing, all the while encouraging the end of prisons and the end of police. George Soros is also involved in installing the election fraud apparatus in our country and many others around the world. That is a foreigner actively taking part in an effort to steal American elections. His DAs let out criminals just like this, and then those criminals go and carry out crimes that just so happen to strike political targets that these people also want to strike. It is not a coincidence that attacks on Christmas celebrations are used to benefit their narrative, partly by distraction and partly from the facts of the actual incident that are then dissected and argued about for days. And keep in mind, the mainstream media tried to convince us that this criminal who plowed through people who were peacefully gathering to celebrate a religious holiday was actually just fleeing from a dangerous situation that he didn't want to be involved in. And therefore, he wasn't actually trying to hit those people. He was trying to somehow move around and through them so that he could get away. And we are supposed to take from that that this man isn't actually attacking the peaceful religious celebration. He was just a victim of circumstance, and there was an accident. And then that story blew right up in their faces. And of course it did. It was wholly unbelievable from the beginning. And we went through that yesterday. The story made no sense. When you hear the mainstream media tell you a story that makes no sense, what you need to think is, what is it they are using this story for? What are they trying to cover up? And why are they giving me this story in particular? Okay. That story is designed to eliminate the pure and obvious guilt that would be laid on the back of Daryl Brooks Jr. And then on the DA and then ultimately on George Soros. What they want to do is eliminate that guilt factor. They want to make it difficult for people to discern whether or not they could feel that he was purely guilty for what is only and obviously a domestic terrorist attack. And why would the media do that? Why would the media do that about an incident that actually helps the narrative and the cause of the people most directly responsible for that incident? We need to call this exactly what it is. It is a domestic terrorist attack. If it happened anywhere else in the world to 
any other religion, it would be obvious. It is impossible to strip the political motivation from this on what we know now. And of course, all of this happens right as the Quo Warranto lawsuit is headed to the Supreme Court. And it's interesting that Lindell was on War Room this morning discussing that, and it seems that there has been a very slight strategic delay in getting the case out in front of the public. It is all still going forward, and this delay was intentional to strengthen the case, and it will be strengthened. So let's check in with how the fake president is doing. This is on Politico.com. This is a memorandum on the Fabrizio Lee poll that was just published yesterday. And this memo is dated November 21st. Fabrizio Lee and Associates recently completed five surveys of N equals 600 likely 2024 voters in the key battleground states of Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. In all five states, President Trump leads President Biden in a hypothetical 2024 ballot, has a significantly stronger job approval rating than Biden, and seen as better to handle a host of key issues tested. Simply put, at this juncture, battleground state voters want Donald Trump leading this country instead of Joe Biden. In a hypothetical matchup between the current and former presidents, Donald Trump leads Joe Biden in all five key states tested. In all but Georgia, his lead is outside the margin of error, and in Michigan and Wisconsin, he leads by 12 and 10 points, respectively. There has been a clear shift over the past year, with voters now in favor of President Trump over Biden. And I'm going to go through some of these numbers with you. Hypothetically, if the 2024 election for president were held today and the candidates were Donald Trump, the Republican and Joe Biden, the Democrat, for whom would you vote? And they have the results by state. Trump leads in Arizona, 5143, in Georgia, 4845, in Michigan, 5341, Pennsylvania, 5145, Wisconsin, 5242. President Trump's approval ratings are a net even or stronger throughout including plus nine in Wisconsin and plus six in Michigan. On the other hand, Biden's approval ratings are incredibly negative. He is underwater double digits in all five states and in all but Georgia, an outright majority strongly disapprove of President Biden. You got that strongly disapprove that many people are like, no, sorry, I hate the fake president. Get him out of here. And let's go through the strongly disapprove numbers, all of which are significantly higher for Joe Biden. Strongly disapprove in Arizona for Biden, 51%. In Georgia, 49. In Michigan, 53. In Pennsylvania, 51. In Wisconsin, 53. And we are really supposed to believe that all these states voted for Joe Biden and it just so happens. These are the only places in the country that had the vote spikes in the middle of the night that we are told are just mail-in ballots, even though they weren't the mail-in ballots. We're just supposed to believe that. We're just supposed to believe that these are the states with the urban centers where black Americans voted more strongly for Joe Biden than anywhere else in the country, even though Donald Trump rose in all minority ethnic groups everywhere else. Come on. 
When asked who is best to handle the following issues, voters in these five key states selected President Trump by wide margins on stopping illegal immigration, securing the border, controlling federal spending, holding the line on taxes, restoring law and order, dealing with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, getting inflation under control and rebuilding the economy. Even on issues that Biden ran on, like protecting Social Security and Medicare and rebuilding the nation's infrastructure, more think President Trump is best able to handle. Given his advantage on these key issues for Americans, it's not surprising they are choosing Trump over Biden in these states. And the margins on the issue based polling are not small margins. These are huge margins in Arizona on stopping illegal immigration, for instance, Trump is a net of plus 37. And he's that way in all of these states, except for Georgia, where he's plus 23. Securing the border, same thing, all roughly plus 30 for Trump. And you can go right down the list. There's barely a subject here where voters prefer Joe Biden on any issue in any battleground state. But for sure, he got 81 million real legal American votes. Except for Georgia, where voters are split, a plurality of voters oppose President Biden's Build Back Better Act. In fact, in Arizona, Michigan and Wisconsin, net opposition is in the double digits. According to the unpopularity of Build Back Better, there is heavy intensity in opposition, but much less so among those in favor. And that's intensity they're referring to there. Battleground state voters are more mixed on Biden's bipartisan infrastructure package, but it is far from the popular initiative the current president was clearly hoping for. Furthermore, as with Build Back Better, those opposed to the infrastructure package are more likely to feel strongly, while those in favor are less so. Not only is Biden unpopular with battleground state voters, but he isn't producing anything that will help him improve. We were told that this infrastructure package where only 9% of it is infrastructure and the build back better agenda, which is really just obviously the bridge to global communism and is exactly the same in all the countries around the world trying to implement a build back better agenda are all popular. We were told these programs are popular, that there was vast support in the American public for these programs. Joe Biden was going to really see his ratings improve. After bringing across the finish line this very bold measure, of course, that was nothing more than a media narrative that did not border on any tangible reality at all. Biden's approval index is abysmal. His approval rating with independence is hovering at 30%. And somehow he has a vice president who is even less popular than him. And this is exactly what you would expect when someone steals an election, tries to force their way into power, and then proceeds to try to pass a bunch of things that no one in the country actually wants. And what's really interesting is that we can see these 50% strongly disapprove on all of these policies, but it's only about 20% who strongly approve of those same policies that Biden is striving for. That's all he actually has. And those people don't even know what the policies are. It's not like they've examined them. It's not like they've thought about them and whether or not they're going to work in the world. They believe that those policies are good and important because they accept all the slogans is true. And they don't think about it beyond that. They like his immigration policy because 
to not like his immigration policy is racist, they think. There's not some great intellectual argument behind that. It's just what they say to make it sound like they are good and smart, even though they don't know anything, and they are actively supporting a modern-day slave trade at the southern border. That is what we are dealing with here. And for 20% of the country to strongly support what this decrepit moron is pretending to do at the behest of others, obviously, is really incredible. I mean, we're talking about likely voters here, people that probably will vote in election, people that regularly vote in elections before the fraudulent election of 2020 in 2016, there were about 130, 131 million votes in the 2016 election. And then in 2020, Donald Trump's total rose 12 million while Joe Biden added 15 million more voters than Hillary Clinton's fraudulent total in 2016. Okay, so in one cycle, the number of voters increases by 25% of the total. There is nothing in history that indicates that's in any way possible, and of course it isn't. We can expect around that same number 130 million people to vote, give or take a few million. The fact that Donald Trump got 12 million more votes and Joe Biden didn't campaign suggests that people who voted for Hillary Clinton, as I did, began to see reality for what it is, and they switched and voted for Trump. There is nothing about that 12 million that suggests all of these are just brand new voters. The idea that Joe Biden could go up at all on Hillary Clinton's number is already incredibly difficult to believe with the increase Donald Trump saw. To think that Donald Trump could have that increase and then Biden's numbers would go up another 15 million, nearly 25 percent of Hillary Clinton's already inflated total. That's what he added on. That's not possible. Now, I don't know if we're going to get a realistic vote tally when all of this is said and done. But if we do, I think it would be really difficult to imagine that Joe Biden got over 60 million real legal American votes. In fact, I think he probably got far fewer than that. But if you imagine that the number of likely voters probably hovers in that 130 million range, Let's say that just for discussion. 20% of that is only 26 million voters. So assuming you can extrapolate from this poll in that way, 26 million voters in this country still strongly approve of Joe Biden as president. That's it. And virtually none of those 26 million are even attached to reality. This is what we're up against. And just this, this is why you cannot be threatened and intimidated by these people. I know they make every effort to convince you that they are this mass of humanity that holds all the moral goodness and righteousness, and they have all the levers of culture and power. So they're able to suppress 
dissent and oppress the citizens. But that is not the actual reality. And it's important to see that and understand it and deal with the implications of that. And so before I go, I want to share this piece from yesterday that appears in Real Clear Politics. Frank Mealy. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name. M-I-E-L-E. I love this headline. Fake White House is a fitting home for fake president. Ha ha. That's weird, commies. I thought you weren't allowed to call him that. I've been calling Joe Biden a fake president since day one. But don't worry, I'm a conspiracy theorist. No one serious thinks that Joe Biden's a fake president. Sure, commie, keep going with that. It only gets funnier for me. News last month that President Biden makes electronic appearances from a pretend White House brought to mind another president whose image was carefully crafted to assuage the American people that all was well, even when things were at their most dire. No, I'm not referring to Franklin Roosevelt, although his facade of the strong, virile man was as much of an invention as Biden's carefully crafted persona as a reasonable moderate who would unite our country. Instead, to fully comprehend the essence of the invented Joe Biden, we must visit the paranoid fantasies of one of our greatest writers, Philip K. Dick, whose 1964 novel, The Penultimate Truth, imagined a future where the leader of the Western world was in fact nothing but a simulacrum programmed to reassure the masses that their sacrifice of toiling underground for decades was noble when in fact it was the equivalent of the turkey's sacrifice on Thanksgiving. Given a choice, the turkey would have politely declined. I'm hardly the first columnist to suggest that Biden is parroting lines written for him in an effort to convince the American public of their need to sacrifice for the general good. But his banal bromides have an unmistakable Orwellian feel. Lockdowns are freedom. Inflation is wealth. Moms and dads are domestic terrorists. But when it was revealed that Biden got his COVID vaccine booster shot in a fake White House, it became easy to picture his presidency as some political variant of the Truman Show or, as I propose, a Philip K. Dick novel. Dick was the mid 20th century's answer to Kafka, an author in search of the ultimate truth who taught us that the truth mostly consisted of disappointment and deception. So, too, might we conclude about the puppet presidency of Joseph R. Biden. Even the majority of those who accept the legitimacy of his presidency can have a hard time believing in the legitimacy of his leadership. According to Donald Trump advisor Stephen Miller, the reason Biden uses this bizarre virtual set for televised meetings and not an actual room like East Room, Cabinet, Oval, Roosevelt, Sit Room, etc., is because it allows him to read from a script directly from a face on monitor and without teleprompter glass that can be seen on camera. That doesn't in itself make Biden an ersatz president. Lots of politicians are nothing but empty reflections of what their handlers put in front of them. But in his case, there is ample evidence aside from the fake White House that he is a product of the imagination of those around him, a figurehead whose policies and even his press conferences are scripted by others. And he links to a quote that says, I'm not supposed to take any questions. And we know that Biden goes with that pretty much all the time. That is certainly true of the president in Dick's novel, Talbot Yancey, who is known comfortingly as the protector and recognized by the masses as their inspirational Spur Paul Mill leader, spiritual, political, military. He doesn't just represent the government of the former United States, but of West Dem or what remains of the Western democracies. The problem is that he isn't a real person. 
He isn't even a whole fake person. He's just the upper half of a simulacrum programmed by smart speechwriters and PR flacks known as Yance men. He also doesn't rule over anyone or anything. The Yance men have all the power, an elite class of administrators who have kept the entire surface of the earth for themselves while relegating the bulk of the population, what is left of it after mass casualties, to underground ant tanks where they survive on stingy rations in order to support the war effort. But what the people don't know is that the war between West Dem and Pak Peep, the communist alliance based in Moscow, ended years ago. The majority of people remain in their underground prisons for no other reason than that the elites from both the Eastern and Western blocs are working together to consolidate their own power and wealth. The robots they requisition from the underground hives are not warrior drones, as advertised, but servants to the technocrats who have divided the earth into their private exclusive domains. Even more than the similarities between Biden and Yancey, it is this divide between the ruling class and the loyal but hoodwinked citizens that strikes as the most troublesome parallel between Dick's novel and our reality. As one of the protagonists, an escapee from one of the underground ant tanks learns midway through the book, Talbot Yancey is, quote, a fake so vast that it could not even be described, end quote, or at least believed. And he quotes passages from the book here. What you're looking at on your TV screen every night down there in your tank, what you call Yancey, the protector, that's a robot. Not even a robot, one of the other bearded men corrected. Not even independent, or what they call intrinsic or homeo. It's just a dummy that sits there at a desk. But it talks, Nicholas said, reasonably. It says heroic things. I mean, I'm not arguing with you, I just don't understand. It talks, Jack Blair said, because a big computer called Megavac 6V or something like that programs it. What makes this so chilling is that Talbot Yancey, who speaks heroic things, only talks to the bamboozled masses, while the elites know he is a fake and a fraud, a convenient construct whose sole purpose is to encourage productivity in the underground ant tanks so that the lavish lifestyles of the above ground survivors can be preserved. Yes, in the book, there really was a nuclear war, but one that has long since ended and ironically resulted in a true peace between the world's great superpowers. Likewise, in our present day crisis, we can be assured that the COVID virus is real and that some form of the pandemic is or was a threat to the general welfare. But in both cases, the crisis has been manipulated by elites into a mechanism to maintain and extend their power. If talking about COVID makes you nervous because you think it might get you banned from Facebook or Twitter, then merely substitute global warming as the life-threatening crisis that the elites warn us about while jetting around the globe in search of a better tan. It's the same principle. You've been had. Of course, it's hard to imagine that the ruling class does not have our best interests at heart, right? Who could believe that Jeff Bezos, for instance doesn't have altruistic purposes in his monopolistic enslavement of the consumer class and his obsequiousness to the Chinese Communist Party. How could we ever grasp the notion that Mark Zuckerberg envisions a world where he and a handful of other technocrats control both the production and dissemination of knowledge? And why would one political party seek to characterize its opponents as racists, Nazis, and proponents of something called the big lie? The deception at hand is so mind-numbing that it is too horrible for most of us to contemplate. That's why sometimes it takes the imagination of an artist like Philip K. Dick or George Orwell to point us toward the evil that man is capable of. 
Only in fiction do we allow ourselves to think the worst. But once our eyes are opened, how can anyone deny the underlying truth of a world where a few powerful elites control and exploit those who slave for them? In The Penultimate Truth, one of the characters in charge of the world order ruminates that the Yance men, quote, ruled through their cynical and professional manipulation of all media of information, end quote. Anyone who is paying attention to CNN, Twitter, or the New York Times can confirm that the same thing is happening today. There are multiple Yance men or Joe bots in the media who aim to protect Biden's credibility, no matter how much they lose their own case in point was a recent Reuters fact check on the fake White House set made famous by Biden. Mind you, the truth was already plain fake. It was, but Reuters nonetheless said it was misleading to claim that the U.S. President Joe Biden received his booster shot for COVID-19 on a fake White House set. Rather than concede that it was creepy that Biden was pretending to be the real president in the real White House, Reuters equivocated by noting that, quote, the president's immunization filming occurred at an actual location on the White House grounds, end quote. Yeah, that's right. In what is essentially a film studio in the Eisenhower Executive Office building, where the White House Yance men rely on special effects to convince the public that Biden is in charge. That's no fact check, Reuters. That's a cover up. No one ever said that the fake White House wasn't located on the White House grounds, just like no one ever said that the fake president saying heroic things isn't really Joe Biden. That's just the penultimate truth. If you want to know the rest of the story, you are more likely to get it by reading Philip K. Dick than Reuters or the rest of the establishment media. And that, my friends, is dead on. The only problems with this article are that it doesn't go even harder and it didn't appear 10 months ago. But I guess we will just take what we can get. It is awfully nice that mainstream media outlets like Real Clear Politics are now posting articles like this one that are unafraid to state the obvious truth that Joe Biden is not only not a legitimate president, he is also not in any way a real president. And that the only way any of us believe it is because we are so consumed as a condition of this cultural manipulation to convince ourselves that the things we know are 100% false are in fact 100% true. It is no surprise then that so much of this country is having a collective meltdown right now. And though all of this is being exposed, there are still those 26 million or so people that remain willfully clueless to all of this. And the longer they continue down that path, the harder it will be for them to ever recover. There will come a point where society at large knows full well what has happened, and they will be able to identify those people in public life and their own private lives who have spent all their time supporting this regime, despite how obviously evil it is. And as I've said a thousand times, it is our job to try to pull those people back to reality before this happens. So that the number of people whose minds break, causing them to act out occasionally violently, 
will be as small as possible, which will reduce the danger and reduce the chances of anything that might spark a civil war. That is the goal. That has always been the goal. And that number of people being small enough that it can be contained and managed is what I believe sets the timeline on all of this. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofi. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!